You're listening to the James Faith in Jesus Work Series, preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. In James chapter 5 this morning, we are find ourselves in a text this morning that is meant to offer sufferers great comfort. James is addressing the believers who are taking up their cross daily and finding that it is growing heavier with each passing day. He's addressing those who have felt the crushing weight of the curse of sin in their lives. Those who have been treated unfairly, who have been defrauded, who have been used. He's addressing those who have suffered injustice at the hands of the rich and of the powerful and now have been reduced to miserable poverty. He's addressing those who are standing up for Christ, but are feeling as though their knees are becoming weak. Those whose hopes are wavering as they attempt to rectify what they know is true about God and about His sovereignty and about His goodness, and what they see in their lives. The evil that they see all around them, the pain that they're experiencing. And sometimes we know that the difficulties of life are overwhelming. He's addressing those who had faith and who have faith, but their faith is becoming impatient. They believe, but they so badly want to see the end of their belief, and they want it now. And I bet you've been there before, where you believe, but you just want to see. You just can't wait for that day when you see all of what you believe and all of your faith Become sight. He's addressing those whose suffering was not caused directly by their own sin, but it was caused as a result of living in a sin-cursed world. And right now, it doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. We've all been there. We've all seen it. And our first tendency when that happens, when we see injustice and when we've been treated unfairly, is maybe anger. Anger that this is not being made right. Anger that God is not stepping in to fix whatever the problem is. I think sometimes we have this desire to bypass the pain. We just wish that God would let us go through this and get past it and that we wouldn't have to go through the trial that we find ourselves in. But there's a truth that is mentioned over 300 times in the New Testament. It is a subject that is addressed more often than any other subject. About once every 13 verses. And that is a a subject that this pain should cause us to long for. In my 13 years of ministry, I have never heard someone say, things in my life are so peachy. They're so wonderful. They're just going so well that I wish the Lord would come back today. We don't say that, right? We don't think that. When life is good, when everything's fine, when, when, when it's just going swimmingly, we're not thinking about, oh, Christ, Lord, come, Lord Jesus. We want his return. We want his presence. We want him to be here. We want him to deal with all the injustice because for us, everything is good. But when things are not going well, when everything seems to be crashing to the floor, that's when our heart cries out, come, Lord Jesus. When we're going through suffering and trials, that's when we want it. We want it to end. We just want to be with him. We want to be in heaven. 
We don't want to have to go through the pain we're going through. This subject is addressed 300 times in the New Testament. Every 13 verses, approximately, is the coming of Christ. The promise that he's going to come back and he's going to set up his rule and his reign. And this promise of Christ's coming, it really is good news. It's a good thing. If you're a believer in Christ, it is good news that someday your Savior will come and he'll set all wrongs right and he'll, he'll set up his kingdom here on earth and he'll rule and he'll reign in perfect holiness and perfect righteousness. This is something we should long for, something that our hearts should desire. Sometimes we get so wrapped up in what's going on right in front of us that we miss that. We don't think about it. And it's suffering at times that brings us back there. The following verses are found immediately after James gives a seething condemnation of the unbelieving rich who have hoarded their riches, just piled it on. They want more and more and more, and they need more and more and more. They've become rich by defrauding others. They've not been paying their laborers. They've not been taking care of the people who are working for them. They've been stealing and taking so that they could have more for themselves. They have used their riches for their own pleasure, lived a hedonistic lifestyle, where it's all about them and all about what they can do and the the enjoyment they can find in what they've gained. And he gets to the point in verse 6 where he says, you've actually killed the poor. And this, this was probably speaking about what was called a judicial murder, where you take from someone in court their ability to live. You've taken everything they have. You've taken their job. You've taken their resources what they need for daily life. And this is what the rich have done. The people of God were meant to do two things with this text. The first, they were to be warned. They were to be warned not to be tempted to fall into the same allurements that the unbelieving rich have. And doesn't that happen for us? Isn't it that sometimes we look around and we see what they have, we see the nice cars, we see the nice houses, and we see the lifestyle and the pleasure, and we think, ah, I want that too. I want my house to look like that. I want my stuff to to feel like that. I want leather seats like that person has. It's very tempting. It's natural, I think, to be tempted that way. And what he's doing is he's warning them. He's saying, listen, I know that some things look good for them right now, but it doesn't turn out well for them. All of their riches and all of their stuff will someday stand as a witness against them. Now, God is not against his people having wealth or possessions or money. He is against his people hoarding them for themselves. He's against his people taking them for the wrong means. He's against his people using everything they have only ever for themselves and never giving and sacrificing for others. Right? So he's against those things. It's not riches that are bad in themselves. But he's giving this to warn them, to say, don't live your life in pursuit of the thing that's just going to die. It doesn't mean anything. It's ultimately vain in this life. Live for eternity. It's supposed to be a warning to us. It's also an encouragement. It's an encouragement that God will judge all men by his righteousness and his holiness, that justice will be accomplished. And so if you've been wronged, you don't need to worry. God is on your side. And someday wrongs will be righted. If you are going through a hard time, if if you've been treated unfairly, the God of, of perfect justice will someday do justice for you. These are encouragements, and so we can trust him and and keep living. And so in light of what he's just said, we get to verse 7 of James chapter 5. James writes, Be patient, therefore, brethren. 
unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waits for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it until he received the early and the latter rain. I think here James looks at his audience after the seething condemnation of the rich. He says, brothers and sisters in the family of God who are going through pain right now, and he's got their suffering in mind as he says, be patient. Just be patient. When you encounter somebody that you know is suffering, there are so many things that we want to say to them, aren't there? I mean, we want to fix it. We want to make it right. We want to give them joy. We want, to, we want to take their mind off of what's happening. But we also know as you stand in line at the funeral service or you encounter the person who's just lost their job or you talk to the person who's struggling and being persecuted for the faith, you know that at that moment, there's no words that you could possibly say that would make it all better. You can't bring them joy. You can't make the problem go away. You can't fix it with words. That's actually so frustrating sometimes. As as you talk to people who are struggling, you want to be able to say, this and it's all better. But there's there's nothing to say. There's no words. Except for this. It doesn't make it all better. But it gives us some direction. He says, be patient. The perfect advice as you go through suffering. Be patient. This is not the end. And in the end, somehow, it will work out for the best. See, there's there's no point of telling somebody to be patient if there's only bad ahead, right? It'd be weird if James said, be patient, don't worry, it only gets worse. (laughs) That would be a weird thing to say. The reason he says, be patient, is because James knows that this is not the end. And that in the end, good things are coming that the wrong and the, and the injustice will be righted, and that the suffering actually has a purpose, that God has a good end in mind. Before we move on today, if you're struggling, start with this. Be patient. And he says it because I think we all tend to impatience in tough circumstances. And these brothers and sisters had a reason to be impatient. They had a reason to want things to change. They had a reason to be upset and angry. And maybe you do too. Maybe it's not fair. Maybe you've been used. Maybe the suffering doesn't make any sense. But be patient. Take a deep breath. This is not the end. God is not finished. Patience only makes sense if relief is coming. And what is it that we're waiting for? What does he say we're waiting for? Be patient, but but why? Unto the coming of the Lord. Now, I think we read that verse and we read verses about the coming of the Lord and sometimes we kind of skim by them because we know they're there maybe so often. It happens so often. But be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Like Christ is coming. So be patient because he will be here soon. Be patient because the the circumstances right now are not permanent. Right? This is a temporary situation that you're going through. And even if you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, it's there. It's coming. He is coming again, and he's coming soon. We ought not be bored when we think of the the second coming. We ought not be apathetic toward it. It is supposed to be one of the greatest encouragements that Christians have. And he provides this example for us. 
He says, here's a farmer who goes out, and the farmer plants his crop, and he could plant his crop and then immediately become impatient because he sees no fruit. There's no harvest. There's no growth. He could yell at his crops. Grow! (laughs) What are you doing? You're just sitting in the soil doing nothing. Stop that. He could spend his time worrying why they're not growing, what he did wrong, what he could change, what should be changed. Maybe the seeds are bad. He could be overwhelmed by the lack of growth he sees, that he could just let it crash in on him, or he could be patient. The early rains will come. For them, this would be rains that happen usually in October. The latter rains would come in December, and eventually there would be harvest. And do you know how much control farmers have over rain? Farmers? None. None. And do you know how easy it is to grow anything without rain? It's not. You can't. So what he's saying is, listen, your circumstances, the state of the seeds are out of your hands. There's nothing you can do to make those things grow. You can't provide the rain, the early, the latter. God has to do that. But he will do that in his time. And once he's done that, there will be a harvest. There will be fruit. And you'll see all along that those seeds weren't just sitting in the ground doing nothing. Look at the farmers. Look at how they wait. And you know what? I think some farmers, like their first year, maybe like they get worried about this. I think once you've been farming for like 30 years, you start to go, it's going to happen. Yeah, you know, I wish it happened this day, and I wish I could plan it better and, and all those things, but there's nothing I can do about the rain, so let's just wait. Be patient. Verse number eight, be also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draws nigh. It's almost like he forgot what he just said, isn't it? But I think what he's trying to do is focus our attention in on this. Like, don't read past this. Pause. Be patient. Just like a farmer, be patient. The Lord is coming soon. And he adds a phrase here. He says, establish your hearts or strengthen your heart or take courage. So don't just be patient, but remind yourselves of the truths that will bring strength to your hearts, that will help you to stand firm and to continue on. We find not only patience, but inner strength to endure based on the same truth, that Christ is coming and that he's coming soon. It was on verse 9. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge stands before the door. You ever noticed how our circumstances affect how we treat other people? How our suffering somehow pours out of us often. You're having a really rough week. You're having a really bad time. And all of a sudden, everything that everybody else does is wrong. And every time they looked at you, they looked at you with that, that eye. Right? And every time they, they made a little comment, it was, it was to hurt you. It was to harm you. They, they were trying to ruin you. And so you react accordingly. You react in anger. You You're just so upset and angry that this person would dare. And I think what he's saying here is, when you go through struggling, when you go through suffering, be patient, strengthen your heart, and don't start grudging against one another. Don't start um, just being annoyed by so easily and upset by and murmuring against each other. 
Because remember that the truth that Christ is coming, it both gives us patience, the ability to endure the suffering you're going through, and it gives us a reason to go through that suffering for the glory of God. It gives, it gives us a reason to not just not just endure it, but to use it for something that's, that's greater than itself. We all know, and we've said it so many times, that God works through suffering so much more and he teaches so many more lessons than he does when everything's just going swimmingly, right? We, we know that there's so much more sustenance in the valley. But we don't get the sustenance just by being there. You actually have to say, okay, I'm going through this pain. I'm going through this suffering. What does God want me to do here? How can I live in a way that glorifies him? And I can guarantee that grudging against each other is not the way to go. Just, just being furious with everybody all the time is, is not going to help you grow. If you want to go through this pain and have it worthwhile and have God do a work in your life, then go through the suffering and the pain in a way that brings some glory. These commands aren't easy. I recognize that. As we read this and as we think about some of the sufferings, I think of the suffering that I know people in our church go through and then having God say, well, be patient, just strengthen your heart and make sure you're not letting your lack of, your, your suffering, your circumstances determine how you act and, and live toward other believers or, or other people. I, I know that that's really hard. But the great thing about reading these things is to know that somehow the Holy Spirit inside of us can allow us to do them. Like it's possible. Like this is not just some crazy command that a lunatic gave that you know can't ever happen. That he's telling us this because... By thinking about the coming of the Lord and asking God to give you patience and endurance and all those things, that he can, he can do that in your life, that he can change you. Yeah, you can't do it by yourself. You're not supposed to. But God can. Now he gives us another example. He says, Take my brethren, the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. This is interesting. He, he brings up the prophets. One of the things that's interesting about the prophets is that when you think about people who gave their lives to God, they're willing to do whatever God had called them to do, people that come to your mind have to be some of the prophets, right? They, they went before sinful people and lifted up, proclaimed their sin, said, God will judge you because of this. Does anybody in the world want to hear that God is going to judge them because of the, a sin that they're enjoying right now? Nobody does. Everybody hates that message, and everybody hates that messenger. But they were willing to do that because they were doing what God called them to do. And what did they get as a result? Well, God made sure they stayed in a five-star hotel every night. And he made sure they ate the best meals all the time. They got beatings. Jeremiah was actually taken and dropped into a well, and he got stuck in the mud at the bottom of the well, and he would have died there if there wasn't some people that came... Like, they went through a really rough time. And sometimes God actually asked them to do things that were just weird and difficult. But they did them. And so he says, consider the suffering of the prophets. The prophets went out and put themselves purposefully in a place where they would suffer, knowingly suffer, because they knew that, that their God was going to come soon. And they knew that their God was in control. They, they knew that, that eternity was real and that serving him today was better than not and living for themselves and not doing God's will and then spending eternity without him. 
They are an example of suffering affliction for us. In Hebrews chapter 11.35, the author of Hebrews is speaking of all of these men and women who had amazing faith that we can look up to. And then at the end, he kind of just summarizes the prophets. He says, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Why did they do what they were doing and not accept deliverance when it was offered? So that they could obtain a better resurrection. Others had trials of cruel mockings and scourging, yea, moreover, of bonds and of imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. What a crazy thing to think. That that person who is destitute, afflicted, and tormented, who nobody likes, everybody hates, and, and gets beaten and tortured, is the one whom the world is not worthy of. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth, and these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. That is the example that we're called to follow. It's tough. In Luke 11.47, Jesus pronounces woe upon the Pharisees. He says, Woe unto you, for you build the sepulchres of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. It was the Jewish people, it was their own people that were constantly killing and beating and torturing and doing all terrible things to the prophets. And through all that suffering, they had patience. They endured. Even Jesus himself said that when he was on the cross, he trusted his soul to the righteous creator who was the judge of all. So how did he endure without, without saying anything back, without responding, without retaliating? Right? That's, that's our natural reaction when we go through any kind of difficulty, especially when the difficulty is caused by someone else, to react, to respond. We know that God is in control and that he's the judge of all. and He will judge those people and we can leave it in his hands, just like Jesus did, just like the prophets did. And so be patient. Verse 11. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Does their situation sound happy? Circumstances just abounding with happiness? I can't imagine how awesome it was to be in the bottom of that well. No. And yet we count them happy or blessed, right? They're supremely blessed by God now because they endured then. He says, you have heard of the patience of Job, and you have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Now, we know the story of Job, right? At the end, does it work out well for Job? Yes. Do you remember all that he went through? I mean, can you imagine all that he went through? Losing all of your animals, all of your servants, all of your houses, all of your riches, all of your children killed. Everything that you have taken away, and your body has terrible, painful boils all over it. You're physically sick all the time. And the only thing you have left in this entire world is a wife who won't stop nagging. (laughs) 
And all she's doing is telling you to curse God and die. And he went through all of that. And at the end of all of that, he would not curse God because he said, how can I receive blessing from the Lord and not this difficulty as well? He's the giver of all things. And he knew that someday in the future, he would see his Redeemer. He would be with his Redeemer. And so for Job... The fact that God is good and that he's always good and that he didn't understand why he was going through this difficulty and he never, he never kind of surrendered to his friends and said, oh yeah, no, God is just evil. Or his, his wife and said, I'm just going to die. The whole time, he, he was patient. Job wasn't perfect, right? We know he wasn't perfect. But he was patient. And he is this incredible example for us that the Lord is very pitiful even though at the moment, pitiful is compassionate, right? He's loving. He, he knows your circumstances. He feels, he feels what you feel. He, he knows those things. That he is compassionate and of tender mercy. When you were taking a snapshot of Job's life, you would say, God is not being very compassionate or of tender mercy. But we know the end. It's all about the end. If we get past just now and today and how I feel at this moment and get to the end and say, God, what are you doing and what are you going to do? And I'm just going to trust you to do it because I know you're good. And I'm going to trust your character more than what I see. If we would do that, we would be like Job. Because we would see the end of the Lord. You can have patience in the midst of all kinds of things. And so as we read a text like this, it is important for us to understand it. And once we understand it, to figure out how it changes us. So I have three questions that I want to get to before we're finished, and they won't take too long. The first one is, is Christ actually coming soon? Now, as we read those verses, I wonder, if how, I wonder how many of you thought, well, he's coming soon. James is writing that 2,000 years ago. I mean, he, he was telling people he's coming soon. So is he really coming soon? How soon is soon? That's, that's a tough question to answer. But it did seem like the writers of the New Testament believed in his imminent return, he could come at any time. And they didn't necessarily know for sure that he would come in their lifetime. But they would still write, he's coming soon. I'll give you an example. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, it says, Know this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So he's saying there will be scoffers, right? People that come and, and they just are trying to mock Christianity and they will say, he promised to come, but, but he hasn't come yet. It's been 45, 50, 60 years and he hasn't come yet. Where is the promise of his coming? He's not coming. Peter's answer is, but beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What he's saying is, God will keep his promise. Right? In the middle verses that we didn't read, he talks about how people, people thought there would never be judgment, and then there was a judgment of Noah. Like God is actually in control, even though sometimes it doesn't seem that way, and his promise will be fulfilled. And we don't know when it's going to be, but I'll give you... Three words that Alistair Begg uses to describe. He says, this is what we know for sure about the coming of Christ. He says, number one, it will be secret. Nobody knows the day. Nobody knows the hour. You're not going to peg it. There's not going to be like, as soon as somebody says it's this day, it's not that day. 
Right? That's how that works. Number two, it'll be sudden. It's going to happen suddenly. We're not going to know. We're not, nobody's going to be like, oh, yeah, I saw that coming. It's like, you know, it's suddenly. And the, number three, it'll be spectacular. It, it won't be something you miss. Okay? The whole world will know that Christ has come. It'll be everything different. And then he said it'll be on Sunday. <laughs> he didn't say it'll be on Sunday. This is an S, and I thought it worked. <laughs> is Christ actually coming soon? If we were able to step back out of our lives that do seem long to us and see eternity spread out before us, then there would be no doubt he's coming soon. Even if it was 2,000 more years, it would be soon. Yes, he's coming soon. And and the, the truth is, whether he comes or whether you die to go be with him, your troubles will end soon, relatively. We get one life, we get 70 years, plus or minus 20 or 30. This is short compared to eternity. And you have one life to live for his glory. And he is coming soon. I don't know if that means today or tomorrow, or if it means after I die. It is something that even though we don't know when it's going to be, and we don't know what will happen in our lifetime, it's something that's supposed to encourage us. He's coming soon, and he's the king, and it's going to happen. Just like he promised he'd come the first time, he promised he'd come again 300 times in the New Testament. It, It reminds us of that promise. It's going to happen. Number two, how does the coming of Christ change my circumstance? Answer, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't change your circumstances at all. If you're suffering right now, I'm sorry you're suffering. The Bible does call for believers to weep with those who weep. That's, that's the best we can do, is suffer with you. But it doesn't make everything automatically better. If you're suffering right now, God means for you to suffer. He has a good and internal purpose in your suffering. He can work good in and through you because of the suffering you're going through. The nation of Canada has been captivated, captured by the tragedy in Humboldt. And I think that's one of the times that you look at a circumstance and you go, what is going on? I mean, we're distanced from it, and so it's a little bit easier for us to say, okay, I'm sure that God has a plan in all this. But if this is your son or your brother, or your teammate, I can't imagine what you'd be feeling. And I, I felt for the pastor who got up at that memorial service and spoke, because what do you say about God when you potentially have a room full of people who are angry at God? I think you said just about everything you could say. might not seem like it, but Christ is near. He's there, that he's in control, and that somehow he has a reason for the suffering. We don't get it. We don't understand it. We don't have to. All we have to do is know the one who does. It doesn't change our circumstance, but if we finally get to the question, how does Christ coming change me? We'll get a lot further. It can change your perspective of your circumstance. Can you imagine if the farmer assumed that every day would be like the one before it? That every day there would be no change? That every day there would be no rain? That every day he would have done all of that work in vain? What that farmer would begin to feel like? 
But that farmer needs to step back and, and change his perspective. It's not about today being like every day. It's about a season that we're going through and a time that God has and that the rains eventually come and that the fruit eventually comes. And we need to change our perspective. One of the things that the Bible calls us to constantly, it reminds us of constantly, is our need to see the world and this life and our lives through God's eyes, through his perspective, through an eternal perspective. Right? That is the idea of seek not first the kingdom of God, or seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things to be added unto you. Why? Because we are so caught up with what's going on in front of us right now. And he says, don't worry about the right now, worry about his kingdom, worry about eternity. And then all these things will be taken care of. They'll be set in the right place in the right order. Change your perspective. Change the way that you respond to others. Just because you're going through suffering doesn't give you the right to respond however you want to to people. I know you're suffering, but you're still representing God. Right? You're still called to, to act and treat people a certain way. So change the way you're treating others. It changes the purpose for which you suffer. If any of the prophets would have looked out and said, well, I'm suffering because someday I'm going to be famous. I don't think they'd keep suffering. I think they'd give up. I think it wouldn't be worth it. I'm suffering because someday I'll be rich. I'm, it's not really worth it. But if you change the purpose for which you're suffering, right? I'm suffering, instead of saying I'm suffering because this person did me harm, I'm suffering because I'm trying to build the kingdom of God. That I'm going to act this way toward the person that's wronged me, not because they deserve it, not because what they did is right, but because I am going to try and further the kingdom of God in this suffering. If we change the purpose for which we suffer to being a good thing, I'm, I'm going to go through this suffering, of this loss, um, in a way that glorifies God because I want to encourage other believers around me because someday I want to be able to, to look at them and say, God can get you through this. Change the purpose for which you're suffering. We often would say, that's not fair, it's not right. But if we can look at people who say it's not fair and it's not right, but don't worry, he's coming back soon. When he comes, he'll make everything right. If we can make our perspective like that, then we can endure through suffering. Every servant of God who has ever lived has suffered. Every person who's ever lived has suffered. There is suffering that goes along with being a human being. And I think most of you have that, right? There's suffering that's common to mankind. And there's suffering that is specific to the life of the believer. And we have to trust that God has that suffering in our lives for a reason. Do you know, if God was to take all the suffering out of the world right now, we might think that would be a good thing. Do you know what that would make God? A liar. It would make sin not dangerous. There'd be no reason for God to have been angry for all those years over sin. No, God hates sin because he knows that sin brings death and destruction. He knows that sin hurts people who shouldn't be hurt. He knows what it does to this world. He knows what it's done to this world. He sees the whole picture, and that's why he sent a way of redeeming it. That's why we can now look at our suffering and say it's not just the end of sin and, and, and death and destruction, but that God has redeemed our suffering so that it can be used for his purpose and for eternal purposes. This is a good thing. So as we look at the book of James... As we consider what James tells us, look at your suffering. I know it's bad. I know it's hard. Job's suffering was, that's our example. The prophet's suffering was. But in your suffering, just for now, be patient. 
strengthen your heart. Because Christ is coming soon. This is not the end. And someday he'll put everything right. May we, as the children of God, represent him well in this area. Let's pray.